All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome to this week's episode of Your Brain on Science with me, Elena. This episode is going to be extremely interesting as we discuss more psychedelic theory. The focus of today is going to be on how psychedelics can shift self-concept and how that ties in with what is called ego dissolution. So for those who may not be aware of ego dissolution, this is a concept that has been around for centuries, but was only given a definitive name in the late 20th century. And this happened as folks aimed to qualify the subjective experience induced by a myriad of psychedelics. And this concept has been variously described as the disintegration of boundaries between oneself and the world, a breakdown of one's sense of self and cognition unbounded by models of the self. Um, So this can all be referred to as a type of shift in self-concept. And to help us navigate these concepts and their relation to psychedelics, Dr. Nishé Devineau, a A postdoc at University of Cincinnati studying bioethics and medical humanities is joining us today. So welcome. We are very happy to have you on today. Yeah, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in psychedelics and um, what made you interested in studying bioethics? Yeah, well, so I got involved. I mean, I became obsessed you could say with psychedelics in 2006 when I had a friend had given me some LSD in college I had grown up with really debilitating obsessive compulsive disorder and social anxiety and the experience was completely transformational for me um, really changed my whole way of being in the world and I couldn't really shake the feeling that the most profound experience of my life was an experience I wasn't supposed to have it seemed kind of weird to me so I just kept thinking about it and decided to go to grad school. And then I was planning to uh, kind of undercover think about psychedelic philosophy, but like through other topics, because I thought it was not going to be okay to study psychedelics openly. Mm -hmm. But then in 2010, I learned psychedelic, you know, uh, resurgence in the sciences and specifically like went to a horizons conference that year and, decided that I was going to, that it was a great opportunity to, to kind of cite the science, but in order to go into different directions within the humanities, within, like, as a, as a public person working in psychedelic uh, studies. So that was, that was back in 2010 that I started formally working in the field. And then in terms of bioethics, um, so my background's in, my PhD is in comparative literature, and I study trip reports. So I study, you know, my, my, my dissertation, I was looking at nitrous oxide trip reports from like 1800 so but I'm, lo- I'm writing a book project right now that's looking at trip reports and that, that psychedelic writing from that period to the present um so that's like a big portion of my interest but as I kind of kept working in the field I just realized that there was like a lot of issues with the a lot of the dominant assumptions about psychedelics and that there was a lot of vulnerable people who were going to be coming to psychedelic medicine who had heard about, you know, the potential for miracle cures and were really desperate for healing. And so given that, given the confluence between vulnerable people and a lot of people who are now in the field seeking power and other kinds of like control over vulnerable people, it just seemed like there was a lot of need for a kind of ethical consideration of what was going on. So you mentioned how you weren't really sure about pursuing a like psychedelic career, like out in the open um, until you kind of realize uh, at that conference, do you have um, any advice for people who are interested in like psychedelic related humanities or, or sciences and like maybe compare how it was like then to now a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot less of a risk to, to <laughs> do now. I mean, just speaking about my own trajectory, I my first in- involvement with the sciences was collaborating on the first qualitative study out of the New York University Psilocybin for Cancer Anxiety Study. This was back in like 2014 that I started uh, collaborating there. And 
at the, at the time, like it, it definitely the fact that I was working with scientists lent some credibility to my psychedelic interests. But then it really started to shift when that that parent study became incorporated first into Michael Pollan's New Yorker article and then <laughs> how to change your mind. And after that, I mean, I have a lot of issues with Pollan's perspectives and kind of outsized influence on the field. But I also have been very open about the fact that he has like personally benefited me in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Like, because you know, when I started my second postdoc at, at Case Western's uh, Department of Bioethics, by that point, after How to Change Your Mind was out, when I would come to, you know, meet new faculty at the school and I would say, oh, I work in psychedelic studies. They would, you know, no, everyone I spoke to was like, oh, like Michael Pollan's book. Like it was no longer something that was weird and controversial. It was something that suddenly everyone had heard about. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, you know, he's done a lot to kind of normalize the topic. And so it's not as like, you know, people are more understanding now. I think when people say that they have an interest in working in this field, um, but there's also a downside to the the sorts of ideas that he's normalized and that have become dominant that actually includes ego dissolution. So we can talk a bit about that later on. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, you've written extensively, you know, about like a lot of those topics and the topics that we've covered on this podcast um, through your own research and through writing for Symposia. Um, so I'm excited to also talk about some of that on today's episode. Uh, so uh, let's get right into it, I guess. So I want to first talk about self-concept, right? And like where that kind of plays into ego dissolution. So are these two concepts distinct or are they kind of like tangled together? Yeah, well, so I mean, the concept of ego dissolution, as it is commonly understood through like the pollen supported narrative and that's been taken up by the media is in kind of in line with this like reset your brain narrative that's also very common in terms of like a metaphor for what psychedelics are doing and that I both of these I think are oversimplified but mm-hmm. the idea it, that I've heard from a lot of media like public conversation about psychedelics is that uh, psychedelics kind of there's a metaphor about like your, your brain is kind of like a computer that's gotten slow it's been left on for too long it's picked up all of these um, you know unhelpful habits that are kind of chugging along and then the idea is that you kind of reboot the self by, you know, shutting the self down first into this kind of merging with everything and kind of becoming one with all or just letting go of your individual sense of self. And then there's a rebooting process that happens where you reconstitute your sense of self or your personality in a way that is healthier or is supportive of kind of building and learning healthier habits Mm -hmm. so but you know there's a a lot of the discourse around ego dissolution has been tied to the mysticism scale which is this it's a very binary way of thinking about the self and dissolution where it's like an on off switch you know where you you merge with all and then you come back and you're yourself but um there's a lot of other ways of thinking about ego changes to the sense of self and then self-concept is often thought of in, in terms of like the narrative self or your autobiographical self, your sense of who you are, which is bound up with you know, narrative and story, you know, your different categories that you identify with can be mm-hmm. part of that. And so, um, you know, part of what psychedelic trials do in some cases, including the Johns Hopkins one that I published on recently, is to help p- shift people's sense of self-concept in a way that's more in line with their kind of goals and aspirations yeah so it there's an overlap but it's they can still kind of be like two distinct concepts I guess yeah well I mean so the the ego is often thought of in psychedelic discourse as fairly synonymous with the narrative self or your self-concept in Mm -hmm. the sense of like your your story about who you are. And I think that's part of why preparation and integration are so emphasized because the idea is that like the stories that we tell about who we are and our relation to the world and our communities are all bound up with our own sense of well-being. And so by shifting those stories, you can kind of shift your way of being with the world and your relation to yourself and all those other things. So the role of narrative is really important. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, you know, there's a lot of different ways of talking about it but the basic idea that I see a lot of the time is that this sense of who you are kind of goes away 
for a while during an, an, an intense psychedelic experience and then you know can come online in a slightly different way once you are through that experience definitely and this shifting of like the self is not only done with psychedelics or other drugs right so there's you know a whole industry built on how to shift your self concept and or how to you know reset your brain like you mentioned um through just different modes um so what are like some other ways to alter i guess the mind that you see commonly yeah well so just as a one way of answering this that also gets to some of what we were talking about earlier i would point people to this paper that was in frontiers in psychology in 2018 called psychedelics meditation and self-consciousness but the lead author was was rafael Millier. And we, my co-authors on the, the recent Hopkins qualitative paper that we did were really influenced by this. And it was comparing kind of phenomenological descriptions between, you know, psychedelic experiences and also meditation, like meditative states. So that's like another area where um, some of the phenomenology of ego dissolution can also come up, but without introducing any pharmaco- pharmacological substance. Um, but what is really interesting to me about this paper is that it it really deconstructs the binary idea of ego dissolution as a, this on-off switch that the ego is this one stable, coherent thing, and then you take psychedelics, and ideally you get to the state where that goes away, and then it comes back on. It, it Instead of that, it offers this multimodal kind of map of different kinds of self-loss across both like narrative aspects but also embodied aspects of the sense of self and so it doesn't have one specific like that the the sense of self in this according to this paper is actually like has multiple dimensions to it and each of those dimensions can be affected differently in meditation or in psychedelic experiences and it's actually they argue like quite uncommon to have full self-loss across all the different categories and it's always very limited like maybe a 5-MeO-DMT experience you might you might approximate some of the complete self-loss but it's actually quite uncommon and I I find this multi-dimensional approach to different aspects of the sense of self to be more in line with what I've seen from phenomenological descriptions than the kind of more traditional on-off switch version of ego dissolution yeah I feel like the on-off switch it just makes it so like this or that when I mean we're human beings and it's human beings who are experiencing these things so it's not ever just like one concept within this whole phenomenon right it's it's a bunch of different things happening so I like the multimodal yeah it actually gets into something else from our paper that you know we were looking at changes to self-loss so this is in the Johns Hopkins paper that we did recently where there was just a lot of different kinds of changes to self that were not reducible to the construct of ego dissolution. And so we were suggesting that the preoccupation with ego dissolution might be missing out on other changes to the self that could themselves have like therapeutic applications. And so we feel like the kind of traditional way of thinking about ego dissolution is potentially limiting. Yeah. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more soon here in a minute. (laughs) Um, before we jump into that paper, I wanted to talk about the article, um, Psychedelic Medicalization, Public Discourse, and the Morality of Ego Dissolution, because um, you talk about the media influence of ego dissolution and this morality concept, and you kind of uh, led to that earlier, talking about um, the Poland effect, you know, so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that was uh, one of my earlier papers that I collaborated on with Alex Guerin, who's an anthropologist currently in um, Hong Kong. But we were thinking about, this was kind of in the earlier upswing of the, you know, the media hype around psychedelics. And we were just thinking about the fact that eco-dissolution and psychedelics, you know, being able to achieve that was being tied to specific pro-social outcomes like um making people more liberal making people more you know concerned about the environment anti-authoritarian and that there was this sort of pharmaceutical intervention that was being portrayed as having kind of a moral 
valence to it in terms of the potential benefits for society in these experiences and that those outcomes were being tied to the phenomenon of ego dissolution. Um, So it it was really taking a look at a lot of the the media representations of this kind of like early upswinging of the, the hype around psychedelic medicine and kind of interrogating some of the ideological assumptions that were kind of behind some of that reporting. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting how we have like this this hype that is saying, you know, um, you do psychedelics, you're going to be a better person, like just, you know, as a short version. But it's so funny because in the earlier days of psychedelic use, like before the Controlled Substances Act and like part of the reasoning for why these drugs ended up becoming illegal was for the same reasons, but they were like flipped. It was bad. It was like the hippies, they were becoming too liberal. And, and now it's being touted as like, you know, take these psychedelics and you're going to be, you know, a, you know, how you said, care more about the environment, you know, less about capitalism, stuff like that. So I just think that's kind of an interesting thing to note. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how there, it has become the, the popular narrative has has changed so much. I think that, you know, both of them were obviously like oversimplified. <laughs> and that's part of why, you know, my colleague and I, Brian Peace, decided to write this like right wing psychedelia paper because we felt like there was like a lot it was an overemphasis on now on psychedelics make you a better person. And so, you know, we just need to run with this and get it to as many people as quickly as possible because it's going to potentially save the world. And we were like, you know, it's not actually that simple. If you look at other examples across, you know, both history and cross cultural examples. So that's why we, we kind of motivated us to put that paper together. But in just like another point about that, the just the the morality of ego dissolution paper. In that paper, I worked on this kind of case study of a, um, an article by Maya Singer in Vogue called "Could the Embrace of Psychedelics Lead to a Mental Health Revolution." And to me, this article really encapsulates a lot of what was like going on at the time in the media, because this was someone who she was a journalist writing a, a paper, but about her own experiences ordering ketamine to her home from Mind Bloom. And so mm-hmm. she was port- reporting on this phenomenon, but at, from this insider kind of self-experimentation perspective, which a lot of journalists have turned to in the past few years. Um, and what was so interesting to me is that she was interviewing a lot of the, um, you know, kind of major scientists who are working in the field today. And this, the the explanatory mechanism of ego dissolution kept coming up a lot of like, you know, if she's not benefiting fully from ketamine, it might be because she needs something like psilocybin to really achieve that full ego dissolution effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you look at her representation of what she's actually talking about in her experience, like, what she was trying to deal with with the ketamine was uh, trying to address the fact that she feels like she needs to smoke, like chain smoke while she's writing, and she doesn't want to have to rely on that. And then in her experience, she has this vision of herself as a child who's just kind of like innocently playing with toys in like a dollhouse or something like that. And she, what was so interesting to me is that a lot of her own representation of her experience pointed to the fact that all the pressures of living under you know, precarious capitalism where you have to produce, produce, produce was actually tied to her sense of like needing to smoke while she's writing. Mm-hmm. And yet that systemic kind of context of like actually society is creating extremely stressful conditions for people was completely pushed aside in favor of this like you just needed more ego death kind of explanation for why the effects might not have stuck after her experience. Yeah, I really liked, I think this is a quote from your paper, you said, psychedelic medicalization circumvents the systemic cause of distress by placing the burden on individuals to manage their own sense of well-being. And I really just thought that kind of captured that whole concept really well, and how using this rhetoric is like potentially dangerous to the individual, right? Yeah, well, it's 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 displacing the, the responsibility like onto individuals when actually, right now, the environment is polluted for mental health. Like it's the world that we are building is not a world that is conducive to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And the people who are the most privileged are m- most able 
to symptom manage you know the effects of living under that system and so something like psychedelics might be effective for those people but on the whole the only way we're going to actually achieve any kind of mass mental health in any future timeline is by actually addressing the conditions under which we are living and laboring under right yeah i read an article i don't remember where i read it but i think a friend sent it to me there was an article on like microdosing to be more productive at work mm-hmm. and i just rolled my eyes when i saw it because it's like these companies are coming in and trying to like use this as like your fast fix so you can just be back in society and productive without actually caring about you know what is making you feel anxious or stressed or depressed in this environment that we're living in it's not just you know in your head it's everything around you that also contributes to mental health so yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm actually working on a new paper right now, kind of looking at some of the major figures in the psychedelic medical industry and their ideologies around psychedelics and why they are useful. And I, I'm specifically looking at Christian Angermeyer, who is, you know, behind Atai Life Sciences and mm-hmm. was like a major funder of Compass Pathways. And he's very outspoken about the fact that, like, the world that we're building is bad for mental health. And, but from his perspective, it's like, like for me, it's like, we should question that. It's like, why are we building a world that's bad for mental health? But for him, it's like, that's just the way it is. Capitalism is here to stay. It's going to get, you know, it's going to keep growing. We just have to learn to adapt to these new conditions. And that's where I differ from a lot of these, um, you know, the corporate side of, of the field is that I really think that it's important that we consider what it is that we're building and what we're trying to use psychedelics to do. Yeah. Focusing on the social determinants of health rather than just the the individual. Yeah, because I, I just think that that's like a crucial piece of the conversation. And a lot of the people who are working in higher up places in the psychedelics field, like do come from pretty fairly privileged backgrounds. And so I think a lot of them, like they might not mean to be avoiding these things but I think it's not as obvious like how unfair the world is right now for people who have not had to really struggle and seen just how things are not people shouldn't be working this hard people shouldn't have such little safety nets to fall back on people shouldn't be wondering if they're going to have a house the next month and have clean water and clean food and you know it's just it's it's a lot that's wrong and I, I just if we're focusing on psychedelics being able to fix it it's just to me it's a little bit delusional given the stakes of like everything that's going wrong right now Mm -hmm. I think that's really good food for thought for our listeners too of like why are you invested in this space like right like what is not even for like researchers or people who are working for the industries but you know a lot of like quote unquote psychonauts or just like psychedelic enthusiasts it's I I encourage everyone to ask themselves some of the hard questions of like, what do I think this is going to do? Why am I supporting these things? Like, I don't know. It's a good thing to think about. So, yeah. And I mean, I, I wouldn't be in this field if I didn't really appreciate psychedelics and feel like they had a lot of potential. So, you know, but I, I've just, I've been around so long now that I, you know, I started out honestly as a, a cheerleader and really feeling <laughs> like things were going to, you know, psychedelics could change people's perspectives enough that they would care more about things like, you know, the environment or fixing society. But over time, I've just I've seen a lot of the major players show that their priorities are not in making, you know, the kinds of changes that I think are necessary to really improve the world and that they're kind of leaning on psychedelics as this magical solution that's just going to, you know, but their own actions in a lot of cases kind of contradicts their their claims that psychedelics just make you a better person yeah more ego death (laughs) (laughs) um so you know coming back to the the ego death concept ego dissolution i wanted to talk about uh, the most recent publication the johns hopkins paper um and it's titled psychedelic identity shift a critical approach to set and setting um and all these papers we're talking about, we're going to link on our blog. Uh, so don't you worry. And if everyone uh, needs any PDFs, you can, you know, message me and I will email them to you. But so uh, basically in this work, you did some analyses of the Hopkins smoking cessation study, like you mentioned, and you looked at their manual and the outcomes of these study to identify some themes of this like self-concept identity shift. Is that correct? Do you want to like, give some background 
on that. Yeah. So basically, this was a many years in the making paper. I think I started trying to reach out to people about, you know, does anyone have qualitative data lying around that, you know, needs analyzing back in 2018 when I started my Case Western postdoc. Um, and I had, you know, some grad students there who were interested in working with me. And so I started emailing around and got connected to the, the folks at Hopkins, um, who I'd, you know, known for many years, having, you know, conferences and stuff like that. Um, and then they, it turned out, had these um, patient narratives that were written in the, um, or participant narratives, rather, written in the 24 hours after their dosing sessions. And there had been one qualitative study done on this um, parent trial already by Tassina Rani, who was a co-author on this paper. Um, but that was based primarily on retrospective interviews, um, talking about their experiences down the line. So this was the first uh, first paper to kind of systematically study the reports written immediately after their experiences. And it started out where we just kind of, we didn't know what we were looking for. So myself, um, Elise Smith, my, who was a grad student of mine initially and then is now a PhD student, um, and uh, also Aiden, um, who is currently at, um, she's a, a professor of anthropology. Um, and we were looking at, so, oh, in Seal Feldman, I should say. And so we were, we didn't know what we were looking for off the bat, which often is the case with qualitative research. You don't want to start with a driving hypothesis. You want to kind of look at what's there and build up a theory, you know, from the actual close reading of the narratives themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's normal to proceed that way. Um, but what was interesting about what happened in our kind of iterative discussions around these reports was that there was one day, originally, we weren't actually thinking of focusing on the smoking, because the the amount of discussion of smoking was actually not that big compared to the total amount of the narratives, like people had experiences that were kind of going in all kinds of directions that weren't necessarily focused on the smoking mm -hmm. and even in the preparatory uh therapy or kind of or descriptions that this that the patients participants received they were told that you don't necessarily need to have some kind of smoking related experience to still benefit so initially that wasn't going to be our focus but then one day in conversation while we we're kind of doing these iter iterative readings of the reports Eden was like you know, why is it that so many people seem to be saying, I'm, you know, I'm a non-smoker now. I'm done. I'm a non-smoker, you know, various descriptions, various versions of that. And we were like, oh, yeah. And she was like, is that is that just by chance or is it possible that there was something about how they were being introduced to the study that 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 influenced their ways of describing their experiences? And as a result of that conversation, I reached back out to the the people involved with the parent study, the principal investigator and their team um, was led by um, Matt Johnson and Albert Garcia Ramo. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were able to get, connect us with a, send us the treatment manual. And it was as a result of putting those things together that we suddenly realized like there was a lot of priming and, you know, the, the, the way that the both like representations of addiction, what psilocybin was doing, um, and like all of that was presented in a way that we were seeing showing up in the patient reports about their experiences. So we then kind of made the connections between the treatment manual and the patient participant experiences. And we made the kind of argument that it could be and future research, you know, more research is needed, but it could be that some of the ways that the expectations and priming are set up are actually influencing the kinds of experiences people are having and how they're interpreting those experiences. That's so interesting, like, just how it came to be. I like to always hear the background of how people come up with, like, their analyses. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you discussed the three, these, like, three major themes of this, like, identity shift that were primed by the therapeutic framework. So do you want to talk, like, just briefly about, like, each theme, maybe? Yeah, so the, the first one is is the incredible simplicity of, of uh, quitting, which had come up in a, in a, it was a quote from one of the participants, and there was just recurring descriptions of like oh I'm done now like one person even said like I don't need a second experience like I'm you know it, it's over even for people who felt that they had you know who had struggled with trying to quit before 
Um, that really stood out to me when we first read through the reports because I've definitely had psychedelic experiences where I feel like I'm done with something and, oh, that's resolved and I'm never going to have to struggle with this anymore. But then, you know, as life goes on, sometimes <laughs> it's not it's not that simple and like it appears more simple than it is in, in the moment than it does later on. So um, but we noticed that that was a recurring theme that people emotionally felt done like very quickly. Um, and then the second one, we use the quote, like, sh- shock that I'm a non-smoker. But in that section, we were really looking specifically at some of the, the mnem- mnemonic devices and other kinds of prompts from the, the treatment manual that were really emphasizing that, you know, you, you have to be, to be, you know, to really ad- fully lean into this non-smoker identity. You can't even have just one cigarette. Um, and different descriptions of like needing to kind of have this total abstinence and we connected that to there was this really fascinating narrative of someone who a participant who in their session had in their kind of mind's eye kind of saw themselves lighting up a cigarette and then that one cigarette like turned into this like fractal multi-dimensional like thousands of cigarettes and just kind of like fractaled out and then their experience of that was the lesson from the treatment manual that you can't just have one, that if you smoke one, that is to be a smoker again. And so it's like seeing all the future cigarettes kind of at once. And so what was really interesting to me about that was just the fact that it's sort of like lessons that cognitively were mentioned in the treatment manual were appearing kind of experientially in the visions of some of their participants. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That is like I kind of got chills. Like I don't know. Sometimes when I hear like people's or like read through the reports of people's <laughs> trips, I always am like, oh my gosh, like just imagining that experience. Yeah, no, it's really intense, and it came up again. They spoke about it afterwards with uh, Tessie and Narani in the retrospective interview. So it definitely, you know, stood out to them quite a lot that they were still like talking about it later mm-hmm. on. And then the last one was kind of revealing the real me, another quote from a participant, but that one really focused on this like super fascinating shadow guided imagery uh, script that participants were asked to kind of imagine their way through at the end of their first dosing session. So just quickly to mention, there were a, a bunch of guided imagery scripts that recurred throughout the preparation and like integration periods around the trial. But this was the only time the shadow guided imagery exercise came up. It was only at the end of the first dosing session. And so people had their psilocybin experience and then they came down from that and then had this guided imagery. And at the end of it, they like ritually lit what was like supposed to be their last cigarette and then stubbed it out. And so it was this like ritual um, kind of promotion of the you've been through this big experience and now you're done. But the guided imagery script was like someone was, you know, you're asked to kind of imagine your way through a a pre-written script, but like as if it's you. Mm -hmm. And the script was talking about that you're you're in this beautiful place, you're running with your friend, or or you see your friend in the distance, they're bright and clear and happy. And then you look at yourself and you notice that you're completely in shadow. And then you realize it's because you have essentially this parasitic entity of the nicotine addiction that has been latched onto your body and is using your body like a marionette like puppeteer to reproduce the nicotine addiction so i used a metaphor comparing it to the cordyceps you know fungi that kind of take over insects because that's Mm -hmm. what that's how it was described in the you know that it's like a parasitic alien force that's taking over your body and then in the scope of this uh exercise the the person who is imagining it is, you know, asked to kind of basically step out of the shadow and then the shadow kind of becomes a balloon and it's released and goes off into the air. And there's this realization, you know, you were always a non-smoker and it was just this nicotine that had hijacked your brain and made you think that you were a smoker, but now you've released it. You just had this big psychedelic experience and now you're going to stub out your final cigarette. So it was super interesting to me because there's like a lot of ideology just built into the you know, non-smoker versus smoker distinction, and then also just how much was going on behind the scenes beyond the psilocybin, because a lot of the reports, media reports about the trial has said, you know, psilocybin leads to up to, you know, 80% 
you know, reduction in um, or achieving of, of smoking cessation. Mm-hmm. But there was actually all this other stuff going on in the trial that was alluded to, to be sure, in the published papers, but there wasn't really room in those disciplines to unpack what all was going on. But from our perspective, you know, this is one of the first papers to really you know, show how the sausage is made, so to speak, to like peel back the, the kind of to look behind the curtain at like what it is that's actually going on alongside the administration of psychedelics, much of which is potentially relevant to how people are the outcomes people are having. Yeah, you never see in the methods like exactly what was said or did unless like you're perusing the supplemental or a lot of places will have like a published you know, manual or like methodology paper before like the clinical trial. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting to see. I really enjoyed like reading through this paper and like considering all the other things that go into these trials. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about the the shadow experience, like my first two thoughts, wow, that's intense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the second one is it almost reminds me of like a hypnosis therapy. Yeah, no, it actually so. That's one thing that that we talked about a lot. That there's the the language, like as a since my background's in like I re- study literature and poetry, mm-hmm. there's a real like hypnotic cadence to the scripts. Like it's like this repetition of words and like this really there's a kind of drony feeling to the script that it absolutely is a kind of like self hypnosis that they're kind of building in. Do you have any, like, thoughts about that of, like, a pro and con or, like, do you think it could be potentially dangerous to use something like that well, with psychedelics? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is such a, like, big conversation. I, as soon as I read this material, was instantly concerned about the potential for people to become interested again in psychedelic assisted so-called conversion therapy for you know sexual and gender minorities Mm -hmm. it was a big you know focus of early research and then we have right now people like jordan peterson who are in the psychedelic kind of orbit who are very attentive to following what's going on with psychedelic research and who are extremely outspoken about the fact that things like transgender ideology is a social contagion, that uh, conversion therapy is good actually in helping people to get out of this social contagion and, and, and you know save them from you know surgeries and stuff like that. To me, it's only a matter of time before people start using this and so for, for, for things like that. And that's why we mentioned at the end of the paper, like it's not super controversial for something like smoking but what happens when it's other kinds of minority identities and you're trying to hypnotize people into thinking that they're not actually gay for example so Mm -hmm. to me that's really important to like talk about this and think about as well like who it is that we are inviting into conversations about psychedelic medicine and kind of include because a lot of researchers have been happy to go on to jordan peterson's podcast for example um and, yeah. you know are, are are don't really see the dangers there but to me there's a, it's quite concerning mm-hmm. yeah i i have a lot to say about that but that's a whole different episode so <laughs> just gonna leave it there um but yeah i do think it's definitely good to bring up um those conversations and we have a duty in a certain way to like ethically make sure that treatments or powerful tools such as psychedelics don't get into the wrong hands. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I just feel like there could be more to, 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 to like tell people ahead of time, you know, mm-hmm. what, what their, what the kind of ideological assumptions behind the trial are rather than acting like, these approaches are just the only way of doing things like it's because it's like there's a lot of open questions about you know what is the right way to do psychedelic therapy like what is even the self like how do we you know mm-hmm. how do we understand who we are and so it's like if there was a little bit more transparency i think about you know this is our operating theory about what the self is and what psychedelics do all of these things are still kind of under consideration you know, for under are being researched this is an open question you know, but, you know, we, we 
are including guided imagery and stuff for this. You know, I, I don't know what they told the, the patients, but I, I think, you know, we don't want to end up in a situation where this approach is just happening with other kinds mm-hmm. of, um, you know, minority <laughs> identities. So I, I think if there's a way to build in more into the consent process and that that is like normalized is like something that, you, you know, we shouldn't be doing this just to, it becomes tricky though, right? Because a lot of people are convinced that they want to change their, you know, people can enter into conversion therapy because they think they want to, you know, if they're, they're from a really conservative area in the country or something like that. So con- consent alone is not enough, but I think there does need to be more conversation about what it is that we're trying to do with a, you know, psychedelics and identity shift. Definitely. And so you also kind of, with this research, get into like, you know, this therapeutic framework and the specifics of like this set and setting and how this can increase suggestibility. And, you know, we previously talked with um, someone from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Gukasian, about these uh, factors of psychotherapy and how like this ritual of this experience can influence like expectation bias and outcomes. So I'm just interested to know um, your thoughts on how, you know, these frameworks and these themes, can they like prime this ego dissolution more generally? I guess we kind of touched on it, but maybe just more specifically in um, expectation bias. Yeah. Well, so one thing that we noticed, you know, in our, in the qualitative research was, that some of the outcomes that people were having, including like the sense of being connected to like a more authentic part of themselves or or finding their authentic true selves was suggested in the treatment manual. And yet because the treatment manual had not been published, there was a paper that had come out before our paper that cited this research as providing evidence that um, psychedelics get you in touch with your authentic self. So we, from my, to my mind, like we can't actually cite this paper as evidence of that because it was already suggested to patients ahead of participants ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So I think we in the in the future there's going to need to be more I think comparative research of like if you're not priming people to expect ego dissolution or for people who haven't heard about ego dissolution is that actually coming up? So kind of like seeing you know, trying to measure the correlations between what people are expecting out of their experience and then what they're reporting, I think is, is something that can be done in the future. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, to me, it's like there needs to be a lot more disclosure about what it is that researchers are telling their patients in order to actually determine what it is that people are, you know, are there factors that do seem to come up cross-culturally that are not linked to any specific priming or is there a lot of malleability and kind of plasticity to the experience that can respond to situational factors so yeah it's definitely an important area for future research yeah i would love to see clinical trials you know upcoming in the next few years like use a measure of expectation bias like like a survey before and after or something just to like you know qualitatively see you know is this something that is playing a huge role in some of these outcomes that we're seeing. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so I have another question about the use of psychedelics and the use of these frameworks um, and specifically to substance use. Do you think that psychedelics are potentially just providing a rapid behavioral shift that could be seen with long-term therapy practices, like in substance use disorders um, combined with like that framework? I, I think it's an you know there just needs to be more research still. Yeah. There a lot of the a lot of the research that has been done has not had extremely rigorous like long-term follow-up um that includes, you know, people's re- reactions to their experiences. You know, that includes some of this cuz I think it's important both to do long-term follow-up, you know, based on like quantitative analysis but also asking people like how do you feel that this experience impacted your life in the long term? So there is a lot of, you know, anecdotal evidence from people who have had experiences that have changed them in profound ways, including in my own case. So I I know that that does at least seem to happen, but I think it's really dangerous to talk about psychedelic medicine as offering this quick fix because I just have people, you know, even reaching out to me all the time because my university has been 
publicizing a lot of my research and like news articles. And so I have all the time people reaching out to me saying that they have, you know, they've been struggling their whole lives with like either depression or, you know, substance abuse or whatever else. And they're desperate for a, a solution. It sounds like psychedelics like might be curative and might be actually able to achieve these behavioral changes like really dramatically and, and, and shift that for them in a, in a big way. And I, I don't think that it's, I don't think that's a good idea to be promising that to people right now. Like, I don't think that there's like, there could be, you know, support for long-term behavioral shifts, you know, that is faster in some cases than traditional approaches to changing behavior. But I think that the research is still extremely preliminary. And I think that not everyone benefits and a lot of people might benefit better by an existing, you know, evidence-based treatment option. So I, I, mm -hmm. I just think the research is like very preliminary still and we need to be careful about how it is that we're describing the state of the research. Definitely. I totally agree with that. Um, so I guess finally, and we touched a little bit on this, um, talking about like kind of the hypnosis suggestibility factor, but I wanted to just ask you, um, what are some other potential ethical considerations for like a psychedelic assisted therapy model, um, specifically going back to like self-concept ego dissolution? And is there anything that you believe practitioners and participants and or should be aware of? Well, yeah, I mean, I think right now we're in a situation where we're trying to build the airplane as we're flying it in terms of psychedelic assisted therapy. And a lot of there's a lot of companies that are building training models that are teaching like this is how psychedelic assisted therapy works. This is what you do. These are the principles. These are the best practices. But actually, like we don't have a lot of that dialed in yet. And a lot of the ideas that are circulating right now about psychedelic assisted therapy, including nurturing touch, the idea of a inner healer that just needs to be kind of unleashed to heal the individual from the inside. These are ideas that came from the underground and the counterculture, people like Stan Groff, and they're not evidence-based ideas from the perspective of like Western biomedicine. And so a lot of the basic assumptions of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy are not yet proven with any kind of like evidence-based scientifically. And so I think it's very, I think it's really important that people not act like they know what they're doing before all the evidence is in. I think that there's, I've heard from a lot of people who have been through clinical trials who have been harmed in some way by their approach, the approach to therapy, that there's, you know, assumptions that, you know, bad trips are the best trips. Therefore, if you're going through a really stressful experience, that's good to accentuate in some cases, ideas like that that are actually, you know, harming people. And so I think it's really important to be extremely humble about the state of the research in terms of the therapeutic component and what it is that we're telling people, what it is that people are going through in these, in these studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just more um, awareness of what's going on behind the scenes, like where are these trainings coming from? And like, so just essentially like more transparency with what's going on transparency and humility because i think that there's i've heard from people who are you know have been through the trials who have spoken up about you know something didn't work something was was harmful to me and then some of those people have been ignored have been kind of explained away and i think that we are not at a place where we know that what the therapists are doing is more valuable than what the participants are saying that they're going through. And so mm -hmm. I think we need to be very open to hearing from people who say that they were not benefited by something that happened in a psychedelic assisted therapy trial experience in order to start developing, getting, gathering some of these data points about what is working and what isn't working. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't fall back on, well, the MAPS training told me to do this as an excuse for not listening to trial participants, for example. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Um, so is there any final comments or anything you'd like to mention that I didn't ask that you think is important related to this, uh, to this conversation? Um, yeah, just, you know, really want to reiterate that it is possible to love psychedelics and be anti-hype and anti-guru, you know, in this space, that it's important to 
take a nuanced perspective on like psychedelics can be you know really beneficial in some cases and have the potential to make a big impact on society while also being willing to question some of the dominant ideas and dominant actors in this space because i think a lot of people feel like some of the big organizations are kind of too big to fail and like we need to get behind them no matter what happens because we want like the 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 goal of getting psychedelic therapy across the finish line and becoming mainstream is so important that it justifies like however we want to build it you know but however however is going we have to get behind it because that's like the important factor and so we can look the other way if there is bad behavior or if there's ideas that are not necessarily in the interests of the public in a, a significant way i think that you know and i point to the example of the the internet as an analogy where in the early days of the internet there was a lot of excitement about you know oh this is going to be an inherently democratizing force it's going to connect people across the world and connect people to information but the specific way that it was built out over time has given multinational corporations an outsized role in what it is that people are seeing the information they're getting access to and so it's like and it didn't have to be built that way that was a decision it could have been built in a way that gave more power to the you know to the people and i think that the, the same is true for psychedelics that we don't depend on one organization for this to actually work and the way that it gets built out is actually incredibly important that there are ways that psychedelics can be integrated in society that are just going to fuel and lubricate the existing power inequalities um, monetary inequalities that are actually under underwriting things like capital uh, things like climate change and the rise of authoritarianism and political polarization and there's other ways that we can do this that are actually keeping psychedelics for the people that are emphasizing, you know, core um, traits like consent and access to information that doesn't rely on any specific organization to be the one running the show. So I, I really just want to add with end with those with those ideas. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that it's really important to note that you can criticize your field without being the one that's going to make it fail right I see like a lot of that online of like oh my gosh like talking about anything bad about psychedelics is what made it ruined in the first place like in the Mm -hmm. 70s and it's that's not the case like caring enough about how something is made or how um, the field is going means critiquing it as well so I think and if it's not the people who care about psychedelics that are raising these questions and like pointing out things that could be done differently I think that actually looks worse for the field if it's outsiders who don't like psychedelics that are like hey like what's going on here Mm -hmm. then you know eventually there's going to be more skepticism versus showing a kind of measured approach from the inside I think is really important definitely Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Devineau, for coming on the podcast today. I'm really grateful to have had this conversation with you, and I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's really been a blast to chat. And as always, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And check out our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com, for reading on this topic and more content related to other episodes. That's psychedelicbrainscience.com.